friends, it's certainly a joy to be with you here in the Lord's house uh, on the Lord's day where he has promised to uh, meet us and promised to be with his people and in his house. And so we're gonna trust that uh, the Lord will be faithful to that promise. Uh, we have been walking through uh, the book of Acts this semester for the last couple months. Uh, we come today to Acts chapter nine. Uh, we've looked at all the workings of this first church that was established uh, after Christ's ascension, after Pentecost happens, he then establishes uh, his church uh, on the world in the world. And uh, we've been looking at how does uh, the first church, how does the early church inform uh, what we do today, some 2,000 years later. And so we are looking, and today coming to Acts chapter 9, which is, is likely the most pivotal past, uh, chapter in the book of Acts. Um, it is the chapter where we read of the conversion of Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul. Uh, secular thinkers, secular thought leaders, religious thought leaders alike have looked at this moment as what might be the most influential moment in the history of the world. Uh, that a guy named Paul, right? We had Christ, we had all that Jesus did, but for some reason, Paul's conversion has had such an influence on how all the world relates and interacts with one another uh, that it may be the most influential conversion in the history of the world. Uh, but we're not here necessarily to talk about that. Um, Paul's conversion and your conversion are no different from one another. Because why Paul's conversion matters, why Saul's conversion matters, why your conversion matters, is that we see that because Saul the Pharisee, Saul the one who assaulted the church, uh, is converted to Christianity, believers can know that there is no one, uh, there is no one who is beyond the reach of God's grace. So that's what we're gonna find uh, with the conversion of Saul this morning as we look at Acts chapter nine that saw the Pharisee, saw the uh, persecutor, saw the one who murdered Christians was converted to Christianity, which meant that God was after him in the same way that God is after you. So let's read together Acts chapter nine, verses one through 19 is where we'll be. Uh, so let's give her attention this morning to the reading of God's holy word from Acts chapter nine. This is the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise. And go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. 
And here he has, the, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine and to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we look at a conversion such as this and think of how wild it is, and it certainly is. Uh, how unique it is, and it certainly is. Uh, but Lord, let us not look at this conversion um, and think that our own conversion doesn't matter or think that our own conversion was lesser because we weren't like Saul. Uh, but Jesus, would you remind us that we are exactly like Saul? Uh, there was a time that we did not know you. There was a time that we were hostile against you. And there was a time that we were not doing uh, the works uh, that you had set out for us. Uh, and yet you came for us uh, and you captured us by your grace. Uh, and so Jesus led us for the next hour or so uh, lean heavily into the grace that you have poured out upon us. Uh, we will leave here rejoicing because you have done great things. And it's in your name we do pray. Amen. Uh, so three things we're gonna see in this passage uh, in Acts chapter nine, one through 19, we're gonna see a resurrected Jesus. We'll see a reluctant messenger and we'll see a radical community. So let's dive in where Luke dives in. Let's look at verse one again in chapter nine. Uh, Luke tells us this, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked the high priest for letters to go to the synagogues in Damascus so he could round up, uh, he could round up any Christians and he could bring them back to Jerusalem. Saul is, uh, he is rowdy. He's getting rowdy. He's mad. Uh, he's mad at how Christianity is spreading throughout uh, the ancient Near East there. He's mad and he is on a mission to round up whatever Christians, whatever converts, Jewish converts, uh, have dared to go, as it says, belonging to the way. He said, men or women, Saul was after them to bring them back to Jerusalem. And chances are he wasn't bringing them back to Jerusalem to have like a seminar about how they were wrong. He was bringing them back to Jerusalem because he's gonna kill them. Uh, they were gonna have the same fate uh, as Stephen had a couple chapters ago, uh, that these who were professing Christianity, uh, Saul wanted to have them killed. Uh, and Saul was pretty wealthy. We know this about his upbringing. So this self-funded uh, missionary trip that he would have been on would not have been difficult for him to find himself and to pay some toadies to go along with him. And so he sets his GPS for Damascus. He's got his lackeys with him and he is on a hunt for Christians. Saul is on a hunt for Christians. But what he never anticipated, what Saul never anticipated on this Damascus road was that Christ was on the hunt for Saul. He was on a hunt for Christians, but Christ was on a hunt for him. If we look at verse four again, we're told that a blinding light comes out of heaven. Saul falls to the ground. The people that are with him fall to the ground. And Saul hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me, Saul? And Saul, much like myself said, I don't know who you are. He asks the question back to this voice in the clouds, who are you? And Christ responds, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus. 
Saul, and I'm the one that you are persecuting. And then Jesus tells him, rise and enter the city and then I'll tell you what to do, which is a weird message to get from the clouds, from this voice that's just knocked you off of your horse and onto the ground. And it's then saying, hey, I'm Jesus. You've been persecuting me. Now go and do what I tell you to do. But here's Saul, who's still confused, right? He's asking in verse six, who are you? And Jesus says to him, I'm the one you're persecuting. There's two big things that Saul's about to find out here. And the first one is that Jesus and his people are so connected, they're so inextricably linked, they're so wound and woven together that Jesus is saying to Saul, Saul, you can't hate Christians and not hate me. You can't hate the church without hating me, Saul. You cannot love the church without loving Jesus. You cannot love Jesus and not love other Christians. This is what Jesus is revealing to Saul on this Damascus road, is that his people are his people. They are hidden in his hand. They are connected to him. He fights for them. He is so in love with his people. Theologians call this union with Christ. John Calvin would say that union with Christ is the most central point of scripture, that we are so connected with Jesus that in, in, the, in God's economy, that when God looks at Jesus and when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. That's how connected that we are, that his blood covers you and Jesus is coming to Saul and he's saying, Saul, you're not just smacking people in the head with rocks. When you throw rocks at my people, Saul, you're throwing rocks at me and that stops. That stops today. I'm reminded of that dumb Gandhi quote where he said that I love Jesus, but I don't love Christians. That's not an option. We see that here. That Jesus is saying, you can't love me, Saul, and not love other Christians. It's who I am. So whenever you go at Christians, you're coming at me because we're that connected. If you remember in the gospels what Jesus was saying, uh, he said, I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was hungry and you didn't give me Food and they asked, hey, Jesus, when did we see you naked and not give you clothes? When were you hungry and we didn't give you food? And he said, as you've done to the least of these, you've done also to me. Jesus is so connected with his people through his death and his burial and his resurrection that to assault the people of God is an assault on God himself. So when Saul was going around tormenting and killing these early followers of Jesus, Jesus comes to them and says, Saul, it's as if you're doing this to me. Saul, you're coming after my bride and you can't hate the bride without hating the groom. So Saul, when you come after my people, you're coming after me. So it's not an option for you, Saul, to kill my people without assaulting me. Saul didn't know this. Saul didn't know Jesus, right? Saul is so apart from this. And so he discovers that Jesus and his people are so connected that Saul, who, who we, would know, we come to know as Paul, would later write about all these things in his letters that compose up most of the New Testament that the union of Christ is central to our salvation and that we guard against anything or anyone that comes in and tries to add to our salvation. This is a whole book of Galatians that Paul wrote. 
If anyone tries to add anything to your salvation, if anyone tries to add anything to your Christianity, Christians, Paul says, let them be cursed. The work of Jesus is complete. Union with Christ is complete. And it would define Saul from this moment on. He would write in Galatians that he was crucified with Christ and that he now lives in the life he lives now. He lives in the body, but he lives by faith in Christ who loved him and gave himself up for him. What Paul encountered, what Saul encountered on this road was a God that he couldn't please by his own efforts. For the first time, for the first time, Saul came into contact with the God of the Bible that Saul knew so well. He came into contact with the God who had been pursuing Saul for Saul's entire life. Later on in the book of Acts in chapter 26, Saul is giving an account to King Agrippa about his own conversion about this moment. And he adds a statement that we don't see here in chapter nine, that he adds as Jesus is talking to him from the clouds, he said, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. You may not know what a goat is, unless you're a shepherd in here. But a shepherd had a a sharp stick. They called that the goad stick. They would kind of poke sheep to keep them on the path. So when a sheep is getting like a little errant, they would poke them with the goad stick to get them back in line. Paul is saying, he heard from Jesus saying to him, I have been goading you, Saul, your entire life. Your entire life, Saul, you think you've been apart from me? Saul, I have known you from the moment you were conceived in your mother's womb. I've known you, Saul, actually before the foundations of the world were laid. So Saul, you have been one, you're gonna find out that I'm so inextricably linked to my people that you can't assault them without assaulting me. Second thing you're gonna learn, Saul, I have been on you your entire life. Think of Saul who every time he would open the Torah and he would read of the law and he would read of the works of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, when he would read of this scripture, anytime he looked at the 10 commandments, Paul, Saul is under the weight of what the commandments gave to him. This is what the commandments are for. This is what the law does. The law is designed to point us to Jesus. Saul just didn't realize that. And all of his guilt and all of his doubt, he lashed out. He tells us in Romans 7, he could reconcile his behavior with the law. I haven't killed anybody, right? I haven't slept with another man's wife. I've I've done these things. But he says, when I got to covetousness, then sin produced in me all kinds of covetousness and I died. For the first nine commandments, Saul would look at and say, I have kept those. But then I got to the 10th one and then it struck me dead. So Jesus was chasing down Saul through the demands of the law that Saul loved so much. This law, every time Saul would read it, Jesus was coming after him. And also remember that Saul was there when Stephen was killed. So not only was Jesus coming after Saul because of the law that he was reading, he's coming after Saul through the very thing that he witnessed in Stephen. As Saul was holding the coats of those who were throwing rocks at this first Christian martyr, do you not think that Saul saw saw in Stephen such integrity and such honor and such devotion? That as Stephen said, I look and I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You don't think that Saul heard that? 
Jesus was after Saul. He didn't just put Saul, Saul wasn't there by accident. Jesus put Saul there. So for Saul's entire life, he is coming after him. He's chasing after Saul with the demands of the law. He's chasing after Saul with what he witnessed at the stoning of Stephen. And when Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, Saul, it's hard for you, you can't do it. The last thing that would have gotten Paul's attention is that he was stricken blind. And Saul is a man who loved the Old Testament. So Saul would have known in the Old Testament if you were blind, that meant you were under judgment. So Saul, who thinks he's done everything right, he said this in the book of Philippians, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees, I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. When it came to the law, I was blameless. When it came to zeal, I persecuted the church. I was at the top of the heap, I was the best of the best, and it still didn't work for him that everything he had built his life on, he found out could be taken away from him just like that. In a mere second of Jesus speaking, everything that Saul had built his life on, his achievement, his righteousness, his enoughness was wiped out. Jason Isbell wrote a song called 24 Frames and the chorus of the song he writes, you thought God was an architect, but now you know he's something like a pipe bomb ready to blow. And everything that's built was all for show goes up in flames in 24 frames. In a second, Paul's achievement was wiped out. And you know this, right? You know this, man, to quote Big Lebowski. You know this, right? You know that Jesus comes after you at the place where you want to be the most achieved. You know that Jesus is gonna come after those places where you think you can build a life apart from him to where you don't need him. And if you can stack enough cash up in the bank, you can outsource all your problems, I don't need him. If I can get a good relationship, if I can get a perfect fiance, if I can get in a marriage, if I can get my kids to walk right, if I can, if I can get in a city and get known and, and get ahead, if I, can become, if I can come to Midtown and be a part of this and then I can find friends, I can do all these things and then I won't need Jesus anymore. And you know this, you've lived long enough to know this, that Jesus comes in and he blows all those things up. It's one of the hardest parts about Christianity, that those things that we have given our hearts to, apart from Jesus, Jesus says, I love you too much to let you chase after those. What Saul encountered was not a blinding light from heaven, that was certainly true. What Saul encountered that day was the resurrected Jesus for the first time in his life, and it knocked him to the ground. He found that the real Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, pursues us. He found that the Jesus of Scripture had known about Saul long before Saul ever knew about Jesus of Scripture. This is why salvation can only be by Christ alone. This is why we can't add anything to our salvation. This is why we can't do anything to participate in it because we know that it comes by grace alone because we're not looking for Jesus. Jesus is looking for us. And Saul encountered the resurrected Jesus who sends a very reluctant messenger, which is our second point this morning, the reluctant messenger. If we look at verse 10, we're introduced to a guy named Ananias. This is a different Ananias from earlier in the book. This one's alive and not dead. 
And the Lord showed up in a vision to this Ananias and he says, hey, Ananias, hey, Annie, I need you to head to the street called Straight down in Damascus. I want you to go to the home of Judas, different Judas, and find Saul of Tarsus. He's gonna be there and he's gonna be praying and he's expecting you, Ananias, because you're gonna give him his sight back. You got that, Ananias? (laughs) Go get him, buddy. Go get him, champ. And Ananias, rightfully so, we see in this passage, is a tad hesitant. Remember verse one here, bounty hunter Saul is out hunting for Christians, and that's what Ananias is. That Saul was going to Damascus with an arrest warrant to take Ananias back to Jerusalem and have him killed. Ananias goes, I don't know about this, Jesus. I've heard about this guy. He's killed some of my friends. I think he's coming for me. Are you sure about this? Are you sure about this? Are you sure that Saul of Tarsus, are you sure you didn't get those names flipped? Are you sure there's not some other guy I'm supposed to go to? Why in the world would Ananias do this? Because I wouldn't do this. I'd let Saul rot in that house, old blind head. I wouldn't go in there. Let him die, who cares? But God says to Ananias, I got plans for Saul. I got plans for Saul and Ananias, just as I have plans for you. Saul is my chosen vessel, he says. Ananias, from before the foundations of the world was laid, when I set this whole thing into motion, when we set into motion this plan that Jesus Christ would leave heaven and come to earth, and through his death and burial and his resurrection, we would be reconciled to God and that we would spend eternity together forever. And all that hinges on this man, Saul. He's part of my plan, Ananias. Before Saul ever picked up a coat, before Paul ever chucked a rock at a Christian, I had my eye on Saul. I had my eye on what the devil was doing in Saul, how it made him so vitriolic and so hateful that he would hate so much that he would kill people for this. Ananias, I'm coming to get my Saul back because I have plans for him. I have a mission for him. My mission to take this gospel to the end of the earth is gonna go through Saul. In short, what God reminds Ananias of is that God's grace always extends to the most unlikely of people. God's grace always extends to his enemies because enemies of God are all that there are. We see this in all of scripture, that our hearts are turned away from God, that we're hostile toward God and his plans unless God comes in with his Holy Spirit and regenerates our hearts. He's telling Ananias, that God always seems to use unusual methods. So why wouldn't he use Saul? Sure, he's killed tons of folks. Sure, there's a Barnabas out there. There's John, there's disciples. All these guys are around, but God reminds Ananias here that he has chosen instruments for carrying out his work and that we're all instruments in the Redeemer's hands and that he will wield us in ways that seem foolish to those who are watching. And we see that there's no one who is beyond the reach of God's grace. There's no one beyond the need of God's grace. That if God can convert a hard heart like Saul, then he can certainly convert the world's population. He didn't need Saul to do this. He didn't even need Ananias to do this. 
but he chose Saul for this moment. That everyone is born hostile to God, that we're all born in a sinful posture toward the Lord in total depravity. And then the Holy Spirit comes in and regenerates our hearts to become willing vessels for the Lord's purpose. And Saul is no different. In fact, heaven, heaven is full of folks who were once God's enemy. Do you know that? Every converted soul in heaven was once an enemy of God. Every human singing praises in heaven was at one time hostile to his plans and his mercy through the work of Jesus on the cross and the Holy Spirit's invasion has brought them from darkness to light. And Ananias, today's the day that that's gonna happen for Saul. So Ananias leaves his house and he goes to find Paul, the man who wanted him dead. This reluctant messenger is now going to welcome this murdering man into a radical community that's gonna change Saul forever, which is our last point this morning. If we look at verse 17, Ananias goes into the house and he lays his hands on blind Saul. He's blind. He's under the Lord's judgment. He's been blinded by the light. (laughs) No pun intended. He's sitting there and he can't see. So Ananias, I want you to go into this man's house. I want you to announce who you are because I don't want you to spook him because he's blind, he can't see you. I want you to go into his house and I, want you to, and I want you to welcome him in. I want you to lay your hands on him. And so Ananias goes into this house and he looks into the face of the man who was sent to kill him. He looks in the face of the man who has killed his friends. And Ananias looks Saul in the face And he says these words, brother Saul, brother Saul. It's so easy to overlook this because we say this term a lot. But here is the magic behind this moment that Saul who had persecuted Christians, who had held the coats of those who killed Stephen, the very first words that he heard in his blind head as he is welcomed into a brand new community were words of adoption and not words of condemnation. Ananias didn't go into Saul and say, Saul, you better get it together. Saul, there's a lot of people mad at you. Saul, I know what you did, but I guess I'll have to forgive you. Ananias goes in and he says, brother Saul, your family, your family, Saul. You're adopted into the same family that I have been adopted into. Words of welcome from another Christian are the first words that Paul heard and Ananias laid his hands on him and he says, I want you to regain your sight. And it says here in this passage that the scales fell from his eyes and suddenly he could see again. And the first person he sees is a guy that he was sent to kill who is welcoming him into a brand new family with a bowl of soup. I got some food for you, Paul. Here's your meal train. I know you're hungry. It's been three days since you've eaten. Here, Saul, I want you to take this. He greeted him with the love of Jesus and he gave Saul a whole new reality, one in which sinners are welcomed, one in which murderers find grace, one in which the worst thing about you is not the truest thing about you, one where your past doesn't define you, instead the grace of Jesus does one where Saul was enough simply because Jesus Christ said that he was. 
Paul would later on write in the New Testament. I count it all rubbish. All those things that I've done, they don't mean crap to me because I am now a part of Christ and he is a part of me. That Saul, before he ever lifted a finger for all the good things that he would do for the world, all the good things that he would do for Christianity, that he was simply enough because Jesus Christ said that he was. This was Saul's new reality, that he was accepted before he ever did anything. That what was true was far more important than what Saul would ever do. So how do we know if we're converted or not? When we think of this passage and we think about our own lives, how do we know that what was true for Saul on that day is true for us? Because you probably haven't had a conversion like this. There are some great stories in this room and there are stories in this room, I have lunch with you all the time where you'll tell me things like, hey man, my testimony is kind of boring. Like I grew up in a Christian household. There was never a day that I didn't know Jesus. Good PCA kids always say that. They're liars. They always say that. There was never a day that I didn't know Jesus. I always just grew up in this. My parents did this and it just kind of made sense to me. But I wanna tell you this, there's no such thing as a boring testimony. There's no such thing as a boring conversion because what it means for you is that you were dead and Jesus Christ made you alive. There's nothing boring about that. You were dead and Jesus Christ made you alive that you were possessed, that, that Satan owned you, that Satan had taken you. And Jesus said, I'm coming in to buy you back. I'm giving my life for you as a ransom. There's nothing boring about that. So how do we know if our own conversion is true or not? We look at the life of Saul. That he encountered the resurrected Jesus and then he sought to know him intimately. Remember what God said to Ananias, hey, you're gonna find Saul, he's gonna be praying, probably for the first time in his life. Saul knew all those Pharisee prayers, he knew those. For the first time in his life, he is praying to the resurrected Jesus. He is seeking to know who Jesus is. And then he's told that he's gonna suffer. This is the worst part of Christianity, right? It's the worst part. It's all great if it weren't for that suffering part but we're told that Paul's gonna suffer. What this meant and what it means for us in our own conversion is that following Jesus is gonna have to cost you something. That Jesus has to say about your sexuality. That Jesus has to say about who you live with. That Jesus has to say about who you marry. That Jesus has to say about how you live your life. That Jesus has to say about what you put in your body. Jesus has to say about how much you drink. All these things are true. There are gonna be things that you are gonna have to give up in order to be a part with Jesus. You're gonna know what suffering is. You're gonna know the resurrected Jesus. You're gonna know what suffering is. And lastly, you're gonna know what it's like to have a community of friends around you. This is the other thing that is given to Paul in his conversion is that he has a family who has welcomed him in as wacky as he was. Now, it wasn't seamless. You're gonna see if you read on in chapter nine and at the beginning of chapter 10, the disciples were a little hesitant to kind of let Saul in their inner circle. Saul, he would get run out of Damascus by the Jews. 
Things were a little rocky for Saul, but what Saul could always count on was that there was a community of Christians around. This is amazing when you think about this, that Jesus was lurking around every corner to bring Saul to himself, and that in your life, Jesus is lurking around every corner to bring you to himself. He's gonna go after your achievement. He's gonna go after your intellect. He's gonna go after all these things that you're gonna prop up and say, I don't need Jesus because I have this. And Jesus is gonna come after that. And he's gonna say to you, you've been equipped with every spiritual blessing as to not be in need while you give up all that you know to follow him. This is how we can know our conversion is true. We know the resurrected Jesus. We know what it's like to suffer. We know what it's like to have a community of folks around us. We know what it's like to be in the midst of a church community that longs to see this room full of folks who want to hear this story. Filled with those who desperately need to hear the message of the gospel. If you're here this morning and you're not converted and you haven't given your life to Jesus and you haven't received and rested in him alone for salvation, I plead with you, your church pleads with you, the person sitting next to you pleads with you to not let another moment pass that you don't come to the Lord. To not let another moment pass that you don't bow a knee in submission to him because Jesus is after you. And that we can look at our lives and say, along with, a, with the Apostle Paul, who would later write, that it is a trustworthy and true statement that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're reminded of the words of the saints who wrote the great hymn, Jesus, I come that out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I come. Into thy freedom, gladness, and light, Jesus, I come to thee. So Lord, wherever it is that you have us this morning, uh, we know that one thing is true is that you are jealous for us uh, and that you are hunting us down, that you are the great hound of heaven who is nipping at our heels. So Holy Spirit, would you please turn our hearts, turn our hearts to the Godhead. Turn our hearts to Jesus. Give us eyes, allow the scales of blindness to fall from our eyes that we can see Jesus standing before us complete. Lord, as we'll sing, come all you pining, hungry, poor, the Savior's bounty taste. That Lord, there is salvation for us and it's found only in you. Lord, would you be so kind as to turn our hearts back to you that we would leave here rejoicing because you have done it. It's in your name we do pray, amen.